So this week's scripture passage comes from Genesis 42, uh, verses 14 to 26. Uh, And you can follow along on the screen behind me. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. This is the word of the Lord. There's a term we use for some of these things. We call them skeletons in our closet. Those things that, uh, that maybe you said or did in the past and have kept quiet for years. You know about them and you hope no one else knows about them. Or if, the, if, if there are some other people who know about these things that happened, these things you did or these things you said, that they're going to keep quiet about it. And you know, the, the, those things never really go away. You live in fear of those things coming out and being revealed. You live in fear of those skeletons in your closet coming out and, uh, and, uh, and, and coming back to you, being revealed, being shown. After you live with those for long enough, somehow the fear begins to fade you start to get used to having these skeletons in your closet, these stories of your past. You, you learn to live with them, but the fear never really goes away. You always are thinking about these things. And from time to time, you may forget about them for a while, but from time to time, something will happen and it will bring it to mind, uh, this skeleton in your closet. It might be some... Uh, mischief maybe you got into with some friends when you were younger that would uh, cause you some embarrassment if it was to, uh, to come to light now. Uh, perhaps there were some facts at work that uh, you never really brought to light because it would have caused some trouble 
And so you just kept quiet. But in the back of your mind, every once in a while you think, what if someone goes back and searches those records and finds out and starts to investigate because I'm going to look bad when, when, if that ever comes to light. And it could be trouble for you and maybe for others with you. Isn't that one of our fears? Maybe for those of us who are a little bit older, one of our fears is you know, uh, meeting up with our high school friends because uh, then you might start to talk about those things you did and you just as soon, you know, when you're a little more mature, you just as soon leave those things behind and not, uh, not discuss them openly. And these, these things, these skeletons can linger on for a while. You know, even in my, in my own family, my great-grandfather uh, faced charges of theft from his employer back in 1920. So this is going back some, some many, many years. And it is, uh, it's come to light now, uh, but it turns out that, that he faced these charges somehow along the way. We don't know the details. The charges were dropped, uh, but he left Winnipeg under a cloud of suspicion and a somewhat tarnished reputation, returned to Ontario where he was born, and for years, Nobody who knew the story would actually talk about it. And none of our family knew what had happened. We knew there was something that happened in Winnipeg that had caused this great, my great-grandfather to flee from Winnipeg and return to Ontario, but nobody would talk about it. And there were uh, his, uh, my great-grandfather's siblings knew what had happened, but none of them, would have, none of them talked about it. And uh, even when the last of the siblings uh, was... was was alive, quite elderly, and she was, uh, she was approaching death, they said, come on, tell us what happened. There's nobody left. Nobody really cares anymore, but we would like to know. And she refused. It took someone uh, just to do a little digging, and uh, of course, once, once she got everything on the internet, uh, they found it all, and we found out all the details. And now, you know, I can stand here and talk about it. There's no shame. It was a hundred years ago that this happened. It's my great-grandfather, and we all kind of move on. But that skeleton in, my, in our closet lingered in my family for years. And everybody was wondering what had happened. And nobody was really worried about it because it, we knew it had happened so long ago, but it was still there. And those who would have been most affected by it refused to talk about it. They wouldn't bring it to light. And it was, it was kind of interesting and actually a bit of an anti-climax when it actually came out what had happened because we were like, it was the, the theft, of course, it was 1920, so it was, it, was the, it was different then, but it was only like $5,000. And so, it's, you know, you sort of look at it in today's light and you go, well, that was, that was nothing to worry about. Why, what, why was all the fuss? But it still was important for those uh, ones who were more closely involved. There is a skeleton in the closet for Joseph's brothers. They faced uh, this sort of thing that they feared... Uh, was going to be brought to light. And now here in Genesis 42, we start to read the account of what had happened uh, and the intersection, the coming together of Joseph and his family and what they had done is coming to see the light of day. It's, this is the, the process where it's starting. And what, so what do we see here in Genesis 42 when it's brought out into the light? There's two things we see happening here in Genesis 42. We see guilt and we see grace. There's guilt and grace. 
as these things are revealed. Now, just to remind ourselves where, where we are, Joseph has been put in charge of Egypt. He has collected, uh, collected the grain from seven years of abundance. Now they're in a, in a period of famine. And, uh, and, and the famine has, has, is going on and the famine is spreading. It's gone throughout Egypt and throughout the region. And Joseph is still remaining in charge of Egypt and in charge of the distribution of the grain. And so let's look through here as we go uh, through uh, Genesis chapter 42 and see what we see. Genesis 42, verse 1 and 2. There's a famine in Egypt. There's a famine throughout the land. It says um, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt. So Jacob is in the land of Canaan. He's, he's, uh, he's some distance away, uh, but he, and, and he's experiencing this famine and he hears that there's grain in Egypt. There is something uh, that, that can be done to help his family. And uh, <clears throat> he says to his son, he, say, he, he, he says, why do, you just keep, why do you just keep looking at each other? Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. Why do you just keep looking at each other? Here's, here's Dad, and I kind of smile when I read this, uh, when I read this passage. Here's Dad looking at his sons. You know, he's, he's got all these sons here, these strong, able-bodied young men, and they're starving there in Canaan. They hear that there's grain in Egypt. The next step is obvious. Go, get, go to Egypt and get some grain. Right? Like it's, it's not rocket science. We're going to starve if we stay here. There's grain over there. Go over there, get some grain, bring it back, and, and, and things will be good. Dad looks at his sons and says, why do you just keep looking at each other? He's like, what's going on here? This isn't rocket science. Go to Egypt and get some grain. Why are you looking at each other? He must have thought all of his sons went dim all at the same time. Like, how much do I have to tell you here? Do I have to go out and get the donkeys ready and, and, hold, and point you and say, that road down there, that's how you get to Egypt? He's like, what's wrong with my sons? What's happened here? We know what's happened. They don't want to go to Egypt. Why are they standing there looking at each other? Because life has all of a sudden got kind of complicated for them. They have to go down to Egypt. What seemed to Jacob, their father, a very reasonable, easy thing to do, go to Egypt, get some food, has now become very complicated. It's become complicated for his sons. And so here we see a glimpse of guilt. They they feel guilty, of course. That's why they don't want to go to Egypt. If we go to Egypt, they're thinking, what's going to happen? Are we going to, uh, are we going to run into Joseph? You know, it, it, just the idea of going down to Egypt reminds them of what had happened to Joseph, of what they had done to their brother. The skeleton in their closet is starting to escape. The door is opening just a little bit. And they can see that happening. They can see that door opening a little bit and what they have done. And it wasn't just a small thing of stealing a few thousand dollars, but they had sold their brother into slavery. Their guilty guilty conscience has been poked here. 
just in the idea of going down to Egypt. Dad has said something, and now they're all looking at each other going, what are we going to do? We don't want to go down to Egypt. And they're probably just like all of us, just like uh, you and I. You know, what happens when someone brings that sort of question to us? What happens when someone says, well, you should go do this? And, and, and you see that closet door opening and that skeleton trying to get out of the closet, and you think the worst in those situations, don't you? They're probably, who knows what they're thinking? They're, they might be thinking, if we go down to Egypt, maybe we will cross paths with Joseph. What's he going to say to us? You can, ima- you can imagine yourself in the, bro- in your bro- in the brother's position. What, what are they going to, what, what's Joseph going to say to us? If he sees us down in Egypt, he's going to go, there's my brothers, there's the one who sold me into slavery, and now they're going to be in trouble. Even worse, what's going to happen when Dad finds out what we did? For all these years, and we think it's, a, it's somewhere around 15 years or more, Dad's been thinking Joseph is dead. They remember back to the beginning of the story, they took blood and they put it on the, 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 the robe that Joseph had. And they took it back and and made Father think that Joseph was dead. And if all of a sudden Joseph comes back to life, Dad is going to be happy that Joseph is there. But can you imagine how angry Dad is going to be at the brothers for deceiving him for all these years? And deceiving him about something that they had done. He's going to be very angry. So they have lots to fear about and they can be imagining the worst in all of this. And so we see a a glimpse into that guilt where they just stand there looking at each other, unable to do what Jacob has asked them to do. So they set out. It says in verses 3-5, to they set out uh, to go to buy grain from Egypt. Uh, But Jacob doesn't send Benjamin with them. He keeps Benjamin at home. Uh, he was worried about what might happen to Benjamin on the journey. Uh, and so the other brothers uh, set out uh, to, to go down to Egypt. must have been an interesting conversation that they're having in the caravan, in the journey, on the way down to Egypt. Because they don't just doesn't just take a, you know, a couple hours, but they've had days of journey ahead of them must have been an interesting conversations along the way among the brothers. What did we do? What, how is this story going to unfold? One of those things that they imagine, and it's hard to imagine a happy ending to this story when they get down to Egypt. Will they meet Joseph? Egypt's a big place. Maybe they won't even cross paths with him. That might be a good situation. Maybe if it's been 15 years, maybe they won't recognize each other. And, and so even if they see him, they won't know each other. Uh, and so uh, maybe that's what will happen. Maybe he will be dead and we don't have to worry about this all, but they just don't know. They might be thinking, we're going to end up in jail in Egypt. And then Jacob's going to be wondering, what's happened to the rest of my sons? They're all gone now. Joseph and all the others went down to Egypt. They haven't come back yet because they're sitting in prison in Egypt. And so Dad will be at home wondering what's happened. So they set off down to Egypt. 
And we read in Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, that Joseph is the governor of the land and he was the one who, uh, who is in charge of distributing the grain and making sure that people are getting what they, what they need. And then we see an interesting thing happen. It says, so when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does this ring a bell with anybody? This is the dream Joseph had years ago is now coming to be fulfilled. So here we see Joseph's dreams being fulfilled. His brothers unknowingly are now bowing down before him. They don't know it's Joseph. Joseph, we read that uh, uh, Joseph knows. Uh, but his brothers don't. And here they are bowing down before him. So this is the story starting to come together. These are the, the, the plot threads starting to, uh, to, to, to mingle. Our plot thickens. Or maybe it clarifies a little bit here in our, in our story. Joseph and his family are back together after 15 years or so. His brothers don't know it, but Joseph knows it. He says in verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. He knew them. He could see them right away. But presumably, they didn't recognize Joseph. Joseph would have been uh, changed from the, the farmer that he was when he was back in Canaan with his family. Uh, Joseph would have been dressed in the royal robes of the, uh, of the, of the uh, Egyptian uh, government. He was given robes. He was, he was put... Uh, a gold chain was around his neck. He was given fine robes. He was given the signet ring of Pharaoh. The last place Joseph's brothers would have thought that they would, might, would meet Joseph would be the, the one who is second in command of Egypt. So they aren't even thinking that this could be Joseph. Joseph knows right away it's his brothers. But he doesn't let on. He says he pretends to be a stranger and he speaks harshly to them. And he asks them where they're from. They say from the land of Canaan to, re to buy food. So we have this interesting situation here where Joseph is not being uh, quite straight with his brothers. Now his brothers didn't ask, but he's keeping something uh, concealed from the brothers. What, do you, what was going on in Joseph's mind? It's hard to know. For sure, this is a lot to take in. Like, did Joseph ever imagine that all of his brothers would one day be standing before him in this situation? I mean, Joseph knew his dreams, but did he really think this was how it was going to work out? And to actually see them coming and standing before him. You know, it's one of those things that, that, that when it happens to you, you know, you're just sort of in a bit of a shock. And you say, okay, what's going on here? How do I respond to this situation? What's the best thing to do? So Joseph doesn't tell his brothers that, who he is. Maybe a few things are going through his mind. Maybe, uh, you know, Joseph is human. Maybe there's a little thought of revenge coming back. And he's like, ah, look at this. The tables have turned now. My brothers thought they were uh, going to rule over me and control me. And now, look, I'm in the position of authority and there they are bowing down before me. So he could be thinking of a little revenge. It might just be that Joseph just doesn't know what to do with his brothers. He doesn't know how to handle this situation. And so he 
he just avoids the whole uh, the whole situation. He 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 needs he buys some time until he can figure out what to do. Maybe he's just trying to avoid the whole situation. This is just going to be difficult and nasty and messy. So maybe I can give them the grain and send them on their way, and 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 I don't even have to deal with that sort of uh, situation. Those of us like me who try to avoid conflict, that would be my approach. Let me just get them out of my sight, and we won't even talk about this have this difficult conversation that, that needs to happen here. Most people were, were, most commentators say that what Joseph was probably trying to do was to get them to come out and confess what had happened and repent. Joseph gives them opportunities and he says, you know, what, what are you doing here? Why have you come? Who are you? He's giving them a little bit of, an, of a test to see if they'll make any mention of him or the possibility that he might be in Egypt. So it seems that he's giving them a little bit of a test. He accuses them of being spies. He says in verse 9, you're spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. And they deny it. They say, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. So they, are, they, they say, no, we're not, we're not here to spy. We're just here to, uh, to get food. He, they make a claim to be honest men, not spies. And Joseph uh, says in verse 12, no, you have come here to see where our land is unprotected. So Joseph pushes them a little bit more to see how are they going to respond. And they continue on with the story. They end up giving him a little bit more. Look in verse 13. They say they describe their family. Uh, they say the youngest is now with our father and one is no more. So now Joseph knows a little bit more about them. He's, they're at least saying, recognizing that Joseph at one point was part of their family, but they're saying, no, he's, he, he, must have, uh, he must have died along the way. So Joseph continues to accuse them in verse 14 of being spies. And in verse 17, they, he puts them all in prison. They all end up in prison here. There's some small irony in that, that uh, uh, after uh, they throw uh, jo uh, Joseph into the well and they sell him into slavery, now it's his turn to get back at them. And uh, in one fell swoop, he gathers pretty much all of them up and uh, has the authority to put them into prison. Uh, so at least he's maybe feeling a little bit satisfied. Here's a, here's a bit of revenge. I'm going to throw you all in, in prison. But Joseph is looking for the truth. He wants them to say something there. He's giving them a chance to tell the whole story. But look at what happens then in verse 18 to 20. We get a glimpse of grace. Joseph releases them after three days. He says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Joseph relents. His conscience is bothering him. And he says, let one of your brothers stay here in prison and the others can go back. So Joseph uh, extends to his brothers some grace. Joseph has an opportunity here to unleash years of, of frustration, years of anger over what his brothers have done, and yet he doesn't do that. He retreats, in fact, from his first decision to put them all in prison, and he says, no, only one of you has to stay in prison here. He's giving them something that, they, uh, that in a way they don't deserve. 
for what the brothers have done, they probably deserve to be in prison. And yet Joseph is giving them their freedom. Joseph also reveals a bit about himself. He says that he is a God-fearer. He says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. So Joseph is identifying himself with them a little bit. He's giving them a little bit of a clue that he is not like the Egyptians. He is someone who's a God-fearer. He is someone who is a little bit different than the Egyptians. Somehow he is like his brothers. He identifies with them. Generations later, about 400 years later, after Joseph and these events, we'll find there's another God-fearer in a high place in Egypt, and his name was Moses. So it's interesting how this comes around again. So his brothers are released, except for one from prison, and uh, sent on their way. Uh, They're allowed to do what they need to do. Then we get... uh, uh, Sorry, a typo on here. It should be another glimpse of guilt here. The, 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 the brothers are, are, are guilty again. They're saying, surely we did this. Surely we deserved this. We were, we were to be punished because of our brother. And this is why we're having all this, this problem. Now they're really beginning to sweat. They have a sense that what they're, what's happening to them now is the result of what they did 15 years ago. And so they're feeling guilty about this. They're getting some uh, heat from Joseph, although they don't know it. And surely they're going to get it from Jacob when they return home. And so they feel this guilt. They think that, that they, this is the time when they're going to have to give an accounting for the blood of their brother Joseph. And they're feeling guilty about it. And interesting, it says, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter in verse 23. So here they thought that Joseph didn't know what was happening. and yet uh, So they were speaking freely in front of him and yet he could hear everything. But then we see in verse 24 another glimpse of grace. Joseph turns away from them. He starts to weep. And then he turns back and he speaks to them. It says he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. This situation is costly for Joseph. This is not easy for him to deal with. And yet he's showing them grace. He, turns, he has to turn away from them and he's crying over what's happened, over what he's hearing, over being in the presence of his brothers again. And he wants to extend something to him to them, but it's it's hard to do. And so extending that grace is difficult. It touches Joseph. And he wants to do something, but it's hard to do. But he does it. And so we see in verses twenty five to twenty six another glimpse of grace. They get ready to go back to to Canaan. He loads them up with their grain. And secretly, it seems that he actually gives them their money back. They brought money to buy the grain with. They weren't just asking for a handout. So Jacob had sent his sons off with money to buy the grain. They had brought the silver to buy the grain. They would given it, it seems. And now it says, uh, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack. So Joseph is giving them the grain and giving them their money back. Here's a picture of grace. Joseph doesn't accept the payment for the grain that they take. He gives them back 
what they had paid Him. He give, gave them back what they owed Him. And he gave, them, he gave them the grain even though they've done nothing to deserve this. Think of it. These are the, the brothers who sold Him into slavery and He's freely giving them what they need. He's giving them this grain. This is a model of God's love for us. Giving us something we don't deserve. Giving us something we don't deserve. That's what grace is all about. So they travel back. And we, we, they, they travel back home. And on the way, one of, they, they stop for the night. One of them opens his bag. We see in verse 27. And he sees the silver. And he's like, oh no, what's happened? says in verse 28 that when he says to his when he mentions this to his brothers their hearts sank and they say oh no now we're going to look like thieves because we're returning with the money we brought and the grain well the logical question is well where'd you get the grain how did you get the grain without paying for it well the answer of course is no matter what they say the answer is they stole it so now they're 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 even in more trouble because they're afraid of of joseph's um, the incident with Joseph coming to light, now it looks like they're thieves. Now they're really in trouble. Things are just are, are really unwinding on them. You know, their plan is just falling apart. And it, it's just getting worse as they go along. Who's going to believe these foreigners if they get caught with the grain and the money? Nobody. So they fear God. They fear that something is going to happen. They say, what is this that God has done to us? How, how is this possible? What is this that God has done to us? That's a little bit like grace too. Don't we ever stop and, and think about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? God did it for me, a sinner. And we say, how is that possible? What, what is this that God has done to us? How could, this doesn't make any sense. And this is all about grace. They get back home. We read in verse 29 that it says they come home to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They tell him everything that happened. Presumably they're, uh, they're not telling him what happened with Joseph. They're telling him about what happened on the trip down to Egypt. And uh, they don't. Uh, they, 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 they describe Joseph as the man who is Lord over the land. So they don't, still don't know who jo- that that's Joseph. Uh, they tell him what's happened. And then they tell him about the coming back with the money. It doesn't make any sense to Jacob either. He doesn't know. It says in verse 35, when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. So Jacob is worried about this too. He doesn't understand what's happening here either. It doesn't make any sense to him. Now they're all afraid. They're all afraid what's going to happen. Jacob's life is unraveling here. His son Joseph has gone. His uh, Simeon has been left in the Egyptian prison. And now the whole family looks like a, a, a troop of thieves. Maybe. Do you suppose Jacob and the others are thinking that the Egyptians actually didn't want their money? That really what they wanted were slaves? And now there's no, really no hope of Benjamin that, that, that in some way there's no hope for Benjamin because they didn't want the money. What they really wanted was, was the, the human. And so they took a, a human sacrifice instead of a monetary one. Perhaps that's what they were thinking. And they're thinking we're never going to get Benjamin back now. They, they took, the Egyptians took what they wanted from us in payment for the grain. They took 
They took a person. Anyway, they're, in de- they're despairing. They don't know what's going to happen. Reuben then in verse 37 and 38 at the end of the chapter, Reuben says to his father, he, he says, Put, you know, let, me, let me go back. Let me go back and try and sort this out. And Reuben offers one of his sons if he can't go back and sort it out and say, here, you take one of, one of my sons in place of Benjamin if I can't get him back or in, in, instead of Simeon. It, it's, it, you know, you can't really replace a child, but, but he's trying to do something. And Jacob can't accept this offer. And he says, no, we're not, we're not going to do anything. You can't, you can't go back. Nothing can happen. If any harm comes to, to, to Benjamin, the youngest son, if any harm comes to him on the journey, it, I'm, I'm, it's, it's going to be too much. I'm just going to die of sorrow. And so he says, just stay home. Just stay home. So here in this interesting chapter, we see guilt and grace. The guilt part is heavy in the story. The guilt of what they've done for Joseph. Now the guilt of, uh, of, of, of taking this grain without paying for it. It's weighing everybody down and they're unable to make good decisions because of the guilt that they're feeling in this situation. But in that, all of that guilt in this story, grace is peeking out through it as well. Grace is peeking out a little bit. We're starting to see this. This is a drama. This is real life. This is the story unfolding and we see grace peeking out. Uh, in this story. Grace is coming. We can see it coming. It's there in the distance and we know the rest of the story. So we know that the grace is coming, but right now the guilt is a little bit overwhelming. So let's think about this just for a couple minutes here. Guilt and grace. We feel guilty about all kinds of things. We feel guilty about things that we said, things that we did. Sometimes we feel uh, guilty about the things that we should have said and we didn't. Or the things that we should have done and we didn't, we didn't do them. We feel guilty about opportunities to live out the Gospel in our lives and we fail to take advantage of that. The list is endless and if we think about it, it, gets a bit, it can get a bit depressing for us. Guilt is the result of sin. We don't feel guilty if we know we haven't done anything wrong. So, Behind our guilt is sin. In some ways, our sin coming to light and that fear of our sin coming to light is what makes us uh, feel guilty. Having to face the consequences actually sometimes is a bit of a relief because then uh, you know that, that guilt is uh, somehow gone. But, but we feel guilty. We carry guilt around with us, feeling like we've done something, that some, one of those skeletons in our closet is going to come out and our sin is going to be revealed and that's the guilt that we feel. And this problem just keeps going on. This guilt that we feel keeps, keeps happening. We, we keep feeling guilty. Something has gone wrong. We've done something. And we feel guilty. Sometimes we feel guilty even about things we haven't done wrong. But, uh, but that guilt is there. And that guilt is there because of sin. What the, and what does that uh, guilty conscience do? What does that sin do in our lives? And there's the passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangle. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We run the race of life, but our sin holds us back and that guilt can hold us back from really living the way God wants us to. It holds us back from running the race. I remember uh, an interview with Mike Smith. He was a Canadian decathlete. And this was years ago. And he was, he was ahead. He had an opportunity to win the decathlon in this particular event. And I remember watching live the, the last race. I think it was a 200 or 400 meter race in the, in the decathlon. And they, they, the, 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 the athletes you know, took off from their starting blocks and he was right in the back from the start, and the rest of them were just pulling away from him. And afterwards, they interviewed him, and, and they said, what happened? And he said, you know, it was like I weighed 300 pounds. I just couldn't move. And he says, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I just couldn't move. And that's the same sort of thing that happens with us in sin, is that we can't move. We feel it burdens us. It holds us back. And that's what a guilty conscience does for us. David, um, hard to read here, sorry, in Psalm 32, verses 3-5, to Davis, David tells us that this sin comes from unconfessed sin. And he relates in his own life, Psalm 32, verses 3-5, to he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Acknowledgement of sin, confession of sin is what helps the remedy for the guilt. 1 John 1.9 John tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that simple. We can address that feeling of guilt by confessing to God. That's what Joseph needed, Joseph's brothers needed to do, but they weren't ready to do that. And then we see in Hebrews chapter 9, he writes about the sacrifices. The sacrifices that were passed and the sacrifice of Christ. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. He says, this is an illustration for the present time indicating the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. The gifts and sacrifices that were being offered in the temple couldn't clear the consciences. And then he says in verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? So there's a picture in Hebrews 9 of the guilt that comes and the cleansing and the, the clearing of our consciences that come through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is grace then. This is the picture of grace. Of this uh, cleansing of our consciences from acts that lead to death through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ. And here it is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here is grace. A picture of grace. It's by grace we have been saved 
from the punishment of our sin. And it's grace that's freely given. It's a gift from God. No strings attached. Nothing for us to do except we simply receive that grace. Grace is hard to accept. Grace is hard to accept. But God is there and He's offering it to us. Joseph was offering grace, showing grace to his brothers. And God is showing us grace too. We don't need to feel guilty. We can go to God, confess our sins, and have that forgiveness and understand that grace. So here in Genesis chapter 42, we see glimpses of guilt and glimpses of grace. We wrestle with these things in our own lives. But if we confess our sins, we are forgiven. We don't need to carry around that guilt. We simply accept that God loves us and wants to bless us and wants us to be free from guilt. We can experience that grace today in our lives. We all uh, know that grace. We all know that God is there uh, extending that grace to us. And we thank God for that grace. Let's thank God in prayer. Father, we thank You for that grace that You have extended to us that saves us from our sin. And Lord, we thank You for working in the life of Joseph to give us this picture of grace that we could see the hints of grace even in Joseph. Lord, we just come. We're thankful for the grace that You've given to us. We thank You for the freedom from guilt that we can enjoy because You have shown us grace. We ask that You would help us to understand this and walk with this every step of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.